Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, April 25th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Happy Avengers Endgame Day, guys. It comes out tonight, so everybody's going to be seeing it tonight when it hits theaters. I do want to, before we get into the news, I want to plug something. Uh, I did get to go to the Avengers Endgame world premiere in Los Angeles earlier this week, and I recorded a video blog. I tried vlogging for the first time. And uh, we edited that together pretty quickly. It was shot on my iPhone, so the sound is pretty horrible. But uh, I, I would love for you to check it out and try to sub- and subscribe to this channel. It's called Ordinary Adventures. It's going to be more of a personal channel. But I thought, like, you know, most people don't get the chance in their lifetime to ever attend a world premiere of a movie. And uh, this is the biggest of world premieres. So you get to see what that's like, what the, you know, the seating arrangements are like and what the after party is like with all the props and costumes and food and swag and stuff like that. So I'll leave a link in the show notes. Please check that out. And again, subscribe. Um, But let's dive into the news now. 
let's start off with the I guess the big news that was supposed to drop today was news about jo- James Bond 25. Uh, Jacob, what did we learn? Yeah, the, some members of the Slash Film team woke up extra early to make sure we caught the live stream. We were prepared for, the, for an onslaught of James Bond 25 news and say we got a tiny little trickle. We didn't we didn't get a title. They said flat out the first minute of the stream that they did not have a title picked yet, which is uh, annoying <laughs> because uh, – Spectre and Skyfall were both announced with a lot of uh, pop, and, pop and circumstance with their titles and everything. So it's we're still calling it Bond 25 for now. But uh, initially, it, it was a live stream from the GoldenEye Villa in Jamaica, where author Ian Fleming wrote most of the James Bond novels. And of course, the name of his home inspired the 1995 film GoldenEye. And here's what we did learn uh, from producers Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson, and director Kerry Fukunaga, who were all there. Um, they talk a little bit about the details of the movie and why they were in Jamaica, which is where the opening scenes of the film are set. So here's the official plot synopsis for James Bond 25. Bond has left active service and is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. His peace is short-lived when his old friend Felix Leiter from the CIA turns up asking for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be a far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. So a few things to note here real quick. Uh, this will be the third uh, James Bond film to have a uh, major scene set in Jamaica following Dr. No and Live and Let Die. And uh, it's the return of Felix Leiter, played by uh, Jeffrey Wright in the Daniel Craig films, previously played by a rotating number of actors throughout the rest of the series. Got, I think, four or five, maybe even six actors that played Felix at this point. Uh, the stream also confirmed that uh, Ray Fiennes, Leah Sado, Naomi Harris, Ben Wishaw, Rory Kinnear, and Jeffrey Wright, uh, of course, are, are all back as they're as Bond's support team, uh, and in the case of Leia Sado, uh, the love interest inspector is back, which is uh, a first for the Bond films for a love interest to carry over into the next film. I mean, Bond's wife, who was killed very early on in the series, is frequently mentioned, but this is the first time the uh, Bond love interest you know, has actually spanned more than one movie, which is interesting. They also announced additional cast members, including uh, Denali Bensala, Billy Magnuson, Ana de Armas, David Denkichik, Shauna Lynch from Captain Marvel and confirming the previously reported Remy Malik as the lead villain. And interestingly, CBS News, not like some blog, was running an additional detail saying that Remy Malik was playing a new version of Dr. No, the very original first Bond movie villain. But that has not been confirmed. We've reached out and have not heard back. Um, would would it see. make sense for Dr. No to be in this? I mean, it is in Jamaica. It is in Jamaica, and since they cast Christoph Waltz as Blofeld, you know, the most famous recurring Bond villain, I wouldn't be surprised if they went back to that well and said, let's start reinventing, you know, the modern modern takes on classic Bond villains. And Dr. No, he's a title character of that movie, but he's only in the last half hour or so. He's this um, uh, merciless uh, scientist who has an evil island lair, and he has robot hands that he used to crush things. He's actually a really, really good Bond villain, and he uh, kind of sets the stage for, like, the classic template of what you imagine. He was Blofeld before it even was Blofeld. And the idea of Remy Malek playing Dr. No, uh, this mysterious, reclusive, mad scientist with robot arms, I, I dig that. I'm not so sure how I feel overall, but then, like, maybe turning the, the Goldfinger as a villain, maybe, or other villains, but... If they want to do Dr. No again, I, as, as a big Bond fan, I'm not angry about it. But what about you, Chris? I really like the Craig Bond series until Spectre. And that was so, I don't know, I really didn't like that movie. And it, it's, it's left like a bad taste in my mouth. And the fact that this film has gone through so many different like 
directors and incarnations. It just makes me worry they don't know what they're doing anymore, but I'm holding out hope. I like Craig as Bond. I actually think he is my favorite Bond. Um, you know, I, I, I think uh, almost all of the movies have their moments. Even Spectre, which I don't like, has its moments. And Rami Malek, man, he's gone from this actor I used to really like to being like, every time I see him give an interview, he just seems really off-putting now. And I don't know what is going on with him. I don't know. Maybe he's just like constantly in it, it, character it, now. <laughs> is it the stink of Bohemian Rhapsody? It's just like, you know, maybe, but even on? like Maybe, but like even this, the video he recorded for this, like he just seems so like off. And I shouldn't judge him for that because, you know, I'm a awkward person too and i can be very awkward but he seems like extra awkward lately i don't know what's going on with him maybe he's just not comfortable giving interviews but i do think given the right material like mr robot he he is a really good actor so i am i'm curious to see what he does as as a bond villain whether he's dr no or not you have a question for brad uh i i have a I have feelings like this because I'm a huge Bond fan. I don't know what your relationship to, to Bond is, but how do you feel about Leah Sado coming back? The idea of having even more direct connections after Daniel Craig has seen a period of Bond where, like, there is this more cohesive continuity. Does that seem like a good choice, or does it seem like a bad choice to you? No, I, I like that because I, I actually have appreciated that about these Bond movies with Daniel Craig is that they've they've created a, a cohesive storyline where. He kind of evolves as a character and changes, which is something that James Bond never really did. Uh, you know, even the Pierce Brosnan version of of uh, Bond didn't have much evolution, even though there there were some carryover as far as things that happened, uh, you know, in in previous missions. So I I think the idea of bringing back um, a Bond girl for the first time in another movie uh, is a good decision, much in the same way that bringing back um rebecca ferguson in the most recent mission impossible sequel was a good idea of having her carry over from the previous one which was uh, the first female character to uh stick around for two movies there as well yeah i think audiences just they now are used to serialized storytelling over these franchise films and you you really can't do the episodic uh you know the completely episodic stories that they used to do i think it's just like that we're not living in that world anymore you know, we're living in a world of Netflix, which brings us to our next story. Netflix is testing out a bunch of new ways to watch movies. Brad, what do we know? Yeah, so uh, Netflix, in all their infinite wisdom, is apparently trying to make the, the viewing experience uh, for their subscribers a little bit more uh, intuitive, interesting, engaging, what have you. Um, apparently, they're, they're constantly testing uh, hundreds of different ideas. Um, and two of the ones that have recently come to light um, are a an option for people to shuffle through episodes of some of their popular series and also um, to pick um, movies or shows from top 10 lists. So uh, when it comes to the Netflix shuffle option, this is something that fans have uh, wanted for a while, but not necessarily in this format. People have always wanted... Uh, a, a random Netflix button. So rather than sitting on their couch wasting time trying to figure out what to watch, they'll just let Netflix pick something for them and and cycle through it until they're satisfied. And uh, this is something a little bit more specific than that, where um, one of the the features being tested on uh, Android devices for now is that uh, it has a list of TV shows and it gives you the option to select one of them and it will randomly select an episode 
from that specific show. So you're not necessarily picking any program at random, but just a random episode in a show that you're interested in watching, which can be good because there honestly there have been times where I've wanted a show like The Office or Parks and Recreation on in the background, but then I have to take the time to pick an episode that I want to start at. And I think that the idea of doing uh, just being able to pick a random episode is something fun if you just if you're just tossing on something in the background for noise. I feel like that works better with like one of those kind of sitcoms than it would with like a serialized show like Lost or Twenty Four. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it would definitely work better for for some shows than others. But also, if it's one of those shows where you know you've seen it enough where you just like watching episodes here and there, then it it, it could also work well, you know, for some of those shows. Uh, you bring up in the article you wrote for SlashFilm.com that what Netflix still needs is playlists. Can you explain that? Yeah, actually, so because so, this kind of ties into the whole uh, random option thing is what what I would like really is the option to set up a playlist of certain shows that I or movies that I really really like, and then have the ability to shuffle just from those options, almost as if I were watching my own. Uh, custom channel that I made for myself. Like I know that the, my, this channel has episodes of, uh, you know, like like um, Thirty Rock. That's not on Netflix anymore. It's on Hulu. But you understand what I'm saying. Episodes of Thirty Rock, Parks and Recreation, The Office, Big Mouth, and I, I will have them all on the list. And then I just hit shuffle, and it just plays episodes at random as if I were just had a channel on all day. Um, and I feel like it would be great to just kind of like separate, you know, keep shows in in a certain organizational order. Uh, and just have them so that you you know you have a list of maybe movies that are the most important to you that you want to watch first, or movies that you are uh, you um, maybe have been waiting to watch for a long time and keep sitting on. Just I, I want playlists to help my, organize my own list of things that are in my queue a little bit more uh, specifically, I guess. And they're doing top ten lists. Yeah. So aside from my desire for playlists, uh, Netflix is doing something related to lists. Uh, that will give users a little bit more guidance as far as um, what they might be interested in watching. Uh, over in the United Kingdom, apparently, there's a feature being tested where people are seeing um, top 10 programs in certain uh, categories that uh, viewers are watching. So uh, this is apparently part of an effort for Netflix to be a little bit more transparent about what their most popular shows are um, and what, what viewers are paying more attention to. And so uh, for various categories, the users will see a top 10 list of the, the 10 most popular programs, and they can pick from that list if they want to watch one of them. So it's kind of a cool way for users to see what other people are watching, maybe find out about something they didn't realize was um, on Netflix because their own taste preferences maybe kept it from popping up on their uh, you know trending list or, or anything like that. Because the we've, we've noticed that the, uh, the Netflix homepage itself can be odd in what it chooses to display on your page. And sometimes you won't see something that's like new and, and big and popular that you would expect to see right on the front page. Yeah. That's the thing that always weirds me out is like when like stranger things season two comes out and it's like opening weekend of having that on the service and it, that tile does not appear in the trending category. It's yeah, like, well, sometimes, sometimes that, that is BS. That is definitely trending. <laughs> Sometimes there's also like a new big Netflix movie that had like just came out that weekend and it doesn't pop up right away in your like new releases section or something like that. Yeah. Netflix, get your act together. Uh, actually, talking about Netflix, strangely, uh, The Hateful Eight, Quentin Tarantino's uh, The Hateful Eight has been released on the service, but not as a movie. Chris, what is going on here? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, as some people may be aware of, um, when the hateful eight came out in 2015, 
it first had a limited um, run starting on Christmas Day in select uh, 70 millimeter theaters where it played in this um, lengthy roadshow uh, presentation. It was it was it was over three hours. It had a, a intermission. And um, shortly after that, I think December 31st, a, a wider version was released that was a little bit shorter. Um, the, the, the extended cut was 180 plus minutes, whereas the shorter one, quote unquote, shorter one was 160 plus minutes. And up until now, that that extended version, that roadshow version has never been um, released on home media. Uh, you know, the, the version on DVD and Blu-ray and the version that uh, still is on Netflix is the the wider, shorter cut. Um, last month, you know, every every month Netflix announces their their titles for the upcoming month. So last month we learned that um, Netflix was putting the Hateful Eight extended edition uh, up for streaming, and this was very exciting because, like I said, it had never been released before. So you know, I I made a note of it. I even included it in my recent streaming column. I was you know pretty hyped for it. So today is the day. It's finally here, and it's it's not what we expected. Um, rather than being one long three hour plus movie, Netflix for reasons that we have yet to get clarification on has split up into four episodes like it's a mini series uh, each episode is about 50 minutes long and each one has opening and closing credits from the actual movie so uh, if you've seen the hateful eight you'll, you'll remember the opening credits are this very lengthy montage of this carriage riding through the snow and it goes on for a very long time so Every inst- every one of these episodes, quote unquote episodes. Wait, so had- if I'm watching episode three, it begins with that carriage ride, right? Um, it might have, you know, I know certain platforms like give you that skip intro thing, so maybe you'll have that on this here. But if not, you know, if you don't skip it, it does have that same carriage ride opening on each of the four chapters, and then it has the same closing credits on each of the four chapters too. So. In some ways, this actually isn't even the extended version that's in, you know, that was released in theaters. This is like a whole different cut being broken up into, you know, like I said, a mini series. And this is very odd because, you know, it, it was a movie, it was made as a movie. And while it's very hard to believe that Quentin Tarantino would be okay with this just because of, you know, knowing what a film nerd he is, it also is likely that he is the one who signed off on this, which just makes this whole thing extra confusing. So uh, we reached out to both Netflix and uh, Quentin Tarantino's representation. We have yet to hear back from either, but I'm hoping we'll get some sort of answer of how this decision was made and who okayed it and <laughs> why it's happening this way. I mean, on one hand, you know, we live in a world where there are tons of articles in my feed about like when you can take a pee break during Avengers Endgame because it's a three hour movie and apparently people can't go three hours without going to the bathroom. So we, we live in that world, but I, I don't think The Hateful Eight needs to be broken up into four different episodes. Is anyone here on board with the idea of like taking a long movie and splitting it up into like a, a mini series? I remember Quentin Tarantino talking about the subject a few years ago when Hateful Eight first came around. I can't find, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but to paraphrase him, he said he does not understand why people get antsy during long movies when they get sit down and watch a whole marathon of an entire TV season at once. And he was very, and like, 
even though I think it's, it's a psychologically different experience to watch individual chapters as opposed to a long movie, that was his perspective and one that I respected. And to see that they've taken his long movie and turned it into a series of, of episodes is so bizarre because it literally is the exact opposite. And it was the peeve he uh, talked about just a few years ago. So it is incredibly odd. I do wonder if maybe Netflix thinks that this is a way to uh, get more people to watch The Hateful Eight than otherwise might. Because I know even if you're on the couch at home watching Netflix, it's comfortable, relaxing. You still sometimes look at the runtime of a movie and you think, oh, I don't have time to sit and watch that right now. Uh, so maybe that like we don't know if you know if Quentin Tarantino approved this or not, but maybe there was a discussion and they said, look, we think we, we think more people will actually sit down to watch the movie if it's broken up as if it were a series as opposed to them seeing, holy shit, this is a movie that is you know so long. So uh, there's probably some you know uh, obviously logistics to it, but I it's so weird to me that like Chris said, it's broken up with like an opening credit sequence and and like stuff like that. That's just so odd. Well, I'm sure that's contractual. I'm sure that's like in all the contracts that like the 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 stars need to be you know credited at the beginning of every you know of every presentation of the movie and stuff like that. Uh, and, and I do know Quentin Tarantino has like. Of any filmmaker in Hollywood, even more so than like even Spielberg, has more control over his films. You know, any kind of way it's broadcast, if it's broadcast on a plane, he has control over how that's presented. Um, he he keeps the control, so I would think he would be involved in this decision. But like you like you guys said, uh, it doesn't seem like a decision that Tarantino would make. But I don't know. Um, Let's you know. Speaking of Spielberg, let's move on to him because we were talking a few weeks ago about how he was uh, proposing the idea that Netflix movies would not be eligible for Academy Awards. Brad, we have an update on that situation, right? Indeed, we do. Um, the Academy met recently, and one of the things they were figuring out is whether or not they wanted to uh, change the eligibility rules, uh, kind of specifically for Netflix, so they couldn't. Uh, meet the bare minimum requirements uh, for a theatrical release in order to qualify for potential Oscar nominations. But instead, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences opted to maintain the rules that were already in place. Uh, So as of now, they've decided to not change the rule. And um, what a movie has to do in order to qualify uh, for Oscar nominations is that it has to be uh, played in the theater for a seven-day theatrical run in a Los Angeles movie theater. Uh, and there's no issue with it uh, appearing day and date on a streaming service with the theatrical release. Those movies are still eligible. So those were kind of the two big uh, things that people had been complaining about, especially since uh, Roma got so much attention at the Oscars this year. Um, and Roma was given you know, a, a larger uh, theatrical release than Netflix usually does when they're trying to get movies to qualify for Oscars. So that was kind of an odd time to complain about that kind of thing. But because Netflix is making more and more original movies uh, and they seem to be vying more and more for awards, it was something that uh, seemed to need to be addressed, especially since there was some uproar recently about Spielberg even getting in on the argument, even though his stance on the matter may have been a little bit blown out of proportion. Um, yeah. yeah, I think so- I, I think we can all agree this is probably good news for now. Um, let, let's see how... You know the streaming wars. Uh, once they heat up and see if anything change, uh, changes, uh, let's talk about Detective Pikachu. The first screenings hit uh, last night. I was at one of the screenings, and I'll give you my quick uh, thoughts on this. Um, I I have never played a Pokemon game. 
I only I have never watched the Pokemon movie. I I only know of Pikachu and uh, all the Pokemon, uh, you know, through friends and watching Brad play Pokemon Go at Comic Con and stuff like that. Um, so watching this movie, uh, I was struck in the first th- half an hour. I was struck at how great the world building is of this movie. How many Pokemon? They're all so cute and uh, fully realized, and uh, it's. Uh, this there's some fun adventure here, but for me, like the villain story is a little bit on the nose, and um, and it gets a li- it's a little slow. But Jacob, we have on the site an early buzz article that rounds up all the uh, the first reaction from critics. So, am I alone in thinking it's it, it's good, but it it uh, doesn't quite break the video game curse quite yet. Uh, the reactions are a little all over the place, but they definitely lean positive and. So many of the pop, like enthusiastic reactions are from people who seem to have enjoyed Pokemon in the past. I think this very much feels like wish fulfillment for people who already have some familiarity with this world. Oh, uh, but I, in my screening, there were there were adults that were losing their shit as things appeared on screen <laughs> that I did not understand what they were so excited about. So uh, it might just not be my thing. It might not be my world. So if you're into Pokemon, this might be like amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the, the most muted reactions that we collected are from people who who admit, I, I've never seen Pokemon, never played it, so it didn't do much for me. But even the people who didn't seem to care for the movie admitted that the Pokemon themselves are brought to vivid life and that the world itself in Rhyme City, where the city takes place, is really well executed. Um, my one hesitation with some of the most enthusiastic reactions, this is me just... Um, getting a little bit into the uh, industry here is that a lot of these critics were were flown out to Tokyo for a special screening in Japan, and I'm not saying that necessarily influenced them, uh, but it always makes me raise an eyebrow. And I think it's worth at least mentioning before we, you know, go any deeper into this. But yeah, the, the reactions range from everybody saying painfully cute, jammed with action, fun, perfectly suited to fans. Uh, I see the word cute a lot. People want to cuddle Pikachu. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds' uh, voice work gets a lot of praise. Um, people seem to really enjoy it uh, for the most part, but people who don't seem to have the same complaint you did, Peter, which is a convoluted mystery plot that does not quite gel with the really vibrant world it's set in. Yeah. And also I'll say Justin uh, Justice Smith, who is the star of this movie, who is in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, is just so bland. I know – I don't know. I, I just don't understand why he keeps on getting cast in things, but uh... – Whatever. Uh, Avengers Endgame hits theaters tonight. 4DX is a format which is like fully immersive. It, your your chair moves. There's mist. There's lights. There's smoke. There's everything. Uh, they have announced that they're going to feature signature character motions for the first time ever. Brad, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, it means that 4DX is, is getting a whole lot crazier. Um, but basically what 40X has done, and this is the, the longest time they've spent working on this kind of format for, for a blockbuster movie, uh, is that they've, they've taken 10 of the main uh, heroes in the movie and they've applied unique um, chair motions and effects that represent each of the characters. So if you've never experienced 4DX before, uh, like Peter said, it's, it's kind of like a, one of those theme park rides where you have a screen in front of you and there's various effects of fog and, and and mist and like air blowing and your your chair rocks back and forth and forward and up and down and, and all this stuff uh and so this 4dx will do that but uh specifically for these characters these signature character motions 
uh, will be something like when Ant-Man appears on the screen, your seat uh, shifts up drastically when he grows and becomes Giant-Man or shifts down uh, if he shrinks down and becomes a tinier version of, of Ant-Man. Uh, when Iron Man appears, there's a wind effect and pitch movements that make it feel like you're flying through the air. Uh, for Thor, there's like a strobe light effect uh, and the, the chair like heaves in a direction, direction like an upward motion. So uh, it's it's a lot of the similar kind of things, but they've apparently they've done uh, unique movements and patterns to represent these different characters. Um, some of the other ones we heard about we couldn't really talk about because they kind of dive into spoiler territory, we'll, and we'll just leave it at that. Um, but it, my hesitation with this kind of thing is just these kind of theme park rides are fun when those theme park rides are only, you know, five minutes, <laughs> even, ten, even ten minutes. But, like, for a movie like Avengers Endgame, I don't really want to sit for three hours and have my chair rocked around for that long. I feel like it would get real old real fast. Brad, I did this for Transformers the last night. Oh, that's the worst one to do it for. <laughs> I, I know, and I think it was, like, almost two and a half hours long. I can't imagine doing this for three hours long. And I, I want... What were you gonna say? I wonder if it's different if, if it's a movie that you're enjoying though, because <laughs> last night wasn't good. Um, but I, I maybe if you're enjoying the movie, like it, it adds something to it. I, I don't know. Well, here's my problem with it: is when you experience the stuff in a good theme park like Disneyland, it the Imagineers are making these effects to more immerse yourself in the screen environment. But here, and and sometimes that happens, like the the strobe lightning, like that makes sense. But uh, when, like, Ant-Man appears on screen and turns into Giant-Man and you are, like, propelled upwards, I'm not on the screen as Ant-Man. And I'm not supposed to feel like I'm on the screen as Ant-Man. So me propelling upwards just puts me at odds with what I'm experiencing. Do you know what I mean? I'm how, supposed to be experiencing how, it from a third point of view. How far upward? Does it go, like, all the way to the ceiling? Because that would be amazing. Like, if the chair, like, literally shoots you like, into the ceiling. I, I would do that. Chris, we need to get you to experience this with 4DX so you can report I, back. I really wanted to do the Pet Cemetery 4DX, but they only did it in Los Angeles. I emailed them and they said, sorry, we're only screening Pet Cemetery in 4DX in L.A. And sadly, they were not willing to pay for a flight for me to go out there to do this. So I'll have to wait for another movie. I wish they would have done 4DX for Infinity War. And then at, at the end of the movie, half the seats were ejected out of the theater. <laughs> Uh, I also wonder, like, do you think the filmmaker has any involvement? Like, you know how they're involved in the IMAX uh, presentation and the Dolby uh, presentation, Dolby Atmos? Like, do you think they have any involvement on in how, like, you know, the the chairs move when Ant-Man turns into giant man? <laughs> I would imagine they have some input. At the very least, they're aware of it because uh, 40X's YouTube channel has uh, these little, like, 30-second snippets with Anthony and Joe Russo and, and some of the cast members um, talking about, like, the 4DX experience. So at the very least, they've uh, been made aware of it and are getting paid to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very least. Okay, let's move on to <laughs> Disney. Uh, we know when Disney acquired Fox that some people would lose their job, which they did, and uh, some films would be getting the axe, which they are. Uh, Chris... What, what what do we expect from uh, films that Disney is is cutting down with their gigantic uh, Stormbreaker acts? Uh, <laughs> so there's there's a, f a few random films they mentioned in the article. One of them is one we already knew about, which is Mouse Guard, which Disney uh, canceled recently. Um, but it, it boils down to this: that Disney is taking a hard look 
at pretty much every Fox property and they're canceling things they don't think have uh, widespread appeal. And, you know, on one level, that makes sense on a business point of view. And I get it if you're an executive, but from, you know, an artistic point of view, a creative point of view, it's very distressing that, you know, Disney is basically being like, if this isn't going to be a huge blockbuster with franchise potential, we're not interested in it. And, you know, you could argue, well, another studio will pick that up. But, you know, Disney is fast becoming a monopoly if they aren't that already. And, you know, they have control over so much. And when their films are so big, it pushes smaller films out of theaters. You know, like Infinity War uh, or Endgame, rather, it's opening this weekend. It, that's going to push so many smaller movies out because some theaters are only going to be screening Endgame because they only have the capacity to screen one one or, you know, a few movies and they want to make the most money pop- possible. And as a result, they'll be, you know, they'll be shunning other films and just only screening Endgame. Um on top of that, you know, even the films they're not canceling, they're still heavily scrutinizing. One example they give is um, West Side Story, a film that's being directed by Steven Spielberg, who is arguably the biggest filmmaker around. Even his work isn't free from Disney's uh, scrutiny because apparently Alan Horn, uh, the executive at Disney, is very disturbed that, you know, the, the the young youth gangs in West Side Story will be smoking cigarettes, even though, you know, that that's a story set in whatever it is, the yeah. 50s or 60s, where well, everyone... I think, I think Disney has a policy against any smoking in any of their movies, right? Right. But at the same time, you know, it's a movie set in the past when literally everyone smoked, like, nonstop. And you'd think that, like, if your movie is being made by Steven Spielberg, you'd be like, all right, he knows what he's doing. But no, even this, they're being like, eh, I don't know. Imagine going to Steven Spielberg and being like, listen, Steven Spielberg, uh, why don't you cut these cigarettes out of your movie? Because we're worried about, you know, offending children. It's just a, it's a silly way to approach movies. And it just really distresses me. I know people love this idea that, you know, whatever, Deadpool and spider-man and iron man are going to be able to tell jokes together and shit like that but there there has to be you have to consider things from an artistic point of view here and when disney has all the cards and they get to make up all the rules it's not great it hurts other movies it hurts the creative process and i'm i'm really not a fan of it see i was hoping that they would keep fox as a brand that's more adult and could do things that the Disney brand couldn't. I mean, obviously they're keeping Fox Searchlight and they're making, they're still going to make smaller films. Um, it's just a matter. I'm also wondering like the biggest film of all time, Avatar has Sigourney Weaver smoking in it. Right. And that's going to be on the Disney plus streaming service and the Disney category, uh, which is driving me insane. But um, it, will they digitally remove that? Like how far does that I mean- go? It doesn't say if they're going to go back and and change anything, but the article did actually specify that like because Avatar made so much money, they're not being as um, <laughs> scrutinous about the sequels as they 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 would be normally. So even that is is like distressing. Like, all right, Avatar can do whatever it wants, but everything else needs to you know we need to go over it with a fine tooth comb. Yeah, everything else, including Spielberg. Yes. <laughs> Okay, uh, we have one last story. I know we're going over time, but uh, this is something important that I wanted to talk about uh, because the Writers Guild of America is ca- has a standoff with the agents, and HT wrote this 
fantastic article breaking down what is going on here. Uh, but I think this is important to talk about because whenever there's something with the WGA, like they had a strike a few years ago that heavily impacted the TV shows and movies we watched. And this could possibly be heading in that direction, Jacob. And Peter, this is such a complicated issue. I tried researching it myself and my brain broke. So HT did an incredible job of researching and writing this multi-thousand word explainer that lays it all out as cleanly and clearly as possible. And it still goes down these avenues that required me to like really try to absorb it. So I'm going to try to give you the breakdown of her breakdown. But if you want more detail, I recommend you definitely give the whole thing a read. But Give, give us the broad the, strokes. I want yeah, to know, I'm, like, in the simplest way possible, what is happening. Okay. Currently, the Writers Guild of America, WGA, and the Association of Talent Agents are undergoing a renegotiation that has broken down. And even idea of how overdue this is, there has not been renegotiation between these two since 1976, whereas other guilds in Hollywood have their negotiations redone every three years or so. So this is – they're working with decades-old deals. And essentially, they're fighting over – uh, how much writers get paid and how they get paid. And this typically works uh, traditionally. An agent goes out, you know, finds projects that are in development, finds TV shows and need writers, and then will pitch a studio or a producer on their writer, get the writer in the room for a meeting, and the writer will get the job and pay the agent up to 10% of what they earn. And that's how it's been uh, for a long time. That's usually how people imagine it being. And, but, more frequently, in, uh, there's a thing called packaging, which is where an agent will put together a promising project and a director and a writer and give it to the studio for a single fee as opposed to percentages later on. So the studio essentially pays up front for, for this talent package. Everybody collects their money. And even though there may be some percentages later on, even if the TV show or the movie is a flop, everybody else still get paid. So this is a more attractive prospect for agents because they don't have to worry about, you know, uh, long-term effects. They get paid for just bringing it all together. And packaging is not a new thing. It's been around uh, for 50 years. Uh, but what's going on now is that in the age of streaming, uh, way writers getting residuals has changed. And, you know, episodes don't play like they used to anymore. And more insidiously, outside corporate interests uh, now often own controlling stakes in agencies. And those same controlling stakes also are buying... TV shows and Russian companies and networks. So the people representing the writers are also representing the TV shows, which means that the agents are no longer solely focused on giving the writers the best possible deal because there's now an ulterior motive to make sure the writers get paid less so they can make more money for the, for the uh, upper executives because they're also invested in the product they're making. So the WGA put together a, uh, new list of rules saying I please sign this that says that agents can only represent people they can't you know represent a TV show and uh, although 40 smaller agents signed it most of the big agencies uh, did not and it led to this standoff where writers want a bigger piece of the packaging deal they want to be paid a fair share the uh, ATA says that it is a fair share and that's where the show that happened negotiations broke down and many writers took a stand and fired their agents, including Stephen King, Adam McKay, David Simon, and Patton Oswalt. Became a big thing on Twitter. If you see a lot of people with I stand with WGA uh, avatars on their social media feeds, and that's, and that's what they're supporting. And in the meantime, uh, agents argue that this means that TV shows won't be able to staff writers. Uh, it means that uh, writers won't have anybody uh, representing them. 
And then lots of other writers, including uh, Javier Grillo um, Marchau, a writer who worked on Lost and Law and Order SVU, says that uh, in the age of social media, in the age of networking, in the age of uh, of where we are now, uh, writers may only need a manager. They can go find their own work. They can meet with a showrunner and pitch themselves. And, and agencies are thinking they're more valuable than they are. And that's where we are right now. Uh, thousands of agents fired, writers wanting more money. Um, I would argue deservedly so based on all of this and based on how agencies are yeah. being paid a steady amount when when writers have lost 23 percent of income over the past few years uh, due to streaming not applying to the old 1976 non-negotiation deals and that's where we are now and um and it should be said on top of that you have outlets like the hollywood trade publications like a uh, deadline reporting on this and taking a largely agency taking the side of the agencies because most of their scoops comes from the agencies so you know that's where their you know quote unquote bread is buttered so yeah it's it's hg has all the numbers written out here a lot of links she did a lot of research spent an entire weekend putting this article together and seeing it laid out like this does not make it easier to comprehend in fact it makes it more complicated but um that's where we are right now we're, at, we're in an area where the way we consume media has completely changed and the rules the writers are forced to work by are 40 years old and they they want those rules updated and the agencies are fighting back because those rules would make them less money and to be fair as as I pointed out earlier wait so could for, for, could yeah. um could the WGA as a union say that we don't support agencies and all of our members need to you know can't end their deals with their agencies uh I remember, oh God, this is, it's like, and this is what I don't think this may happen after HG wrote her post, but WGA put together a letter essentially more or less saying that. And I remember a lot of writers were actually upset about that because a lot of these writers still have good relationships with their agents. You know, their agencies may be a problem, but their the agents themselves are people they've worked with for years. And so a lot of writers are mad at both sides because they feel like both sides are not coming to a compromise. Uh, but yeah, WGA has, has essentially made it clear that um, writers should fire their agents at this point, and not everybody agrees with that. It's a huge, ugly, bad mess. Hmm. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on this, uh, but you can read HT's full article on the site. I'll link it in the show notes. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find all of our work at SlashFilm.com and all the stories we talked about today in the show notes uh slash film daily is published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send us your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at slash film.com and please rate and review the podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we will see you tomorrow <laughs>